Hello and welcome to How Things Grow. How Things Grow is a podcast about growth and the people who drive it. Join me, your host Shamant Rao, as I speak with some of the smartest people in tech and go behind the scenes of growth trajectories of companies and technologies that power our world today. We dive into the stories of many of these growth leaders and their companies. We talk about origins, early victories, strokes of luck, troughs of failure, and much more, and deconstruct many of the things that they do to drive dramatic growth for their companies and technologies. How Things Grow is presented by me, Shamant Rao, the founder and CEO at the growth consulting firm Rocketship HQ. In the past, I've also served as the travel editor at Mint Lounge, formerly the partner newspaper of the Wall Street Journal in India. How Things Grow is supported by our audio producer, Avery Miles. My guest today is Cameron Adams. Cameron is the co-founder and chief product officer at Canva, the graphic design tool website that was recently valued at over $1 billion. In today's interview, we talk to Cameron about his long and checkered career. We talk about his work on Google Wave, which seemed to be a product way ahead of its time, and which gathered some incredible momentum and buzz, but saw limited adoption. In his next startup, Fluent, he seemed to have everything going for him with this huge surge of early user intent, in spite of which he had to shut it down. Cameron was third time lucky with Canva, which has had a steady start in growth before it really took off in the last couple of years. In today's conversation, we talk about Canva's gradual rise and the forces behind it. We go into some of the key product decisions they've made in the pursuit of the mission of making design accessible to everyone. I'm very excited to have Cameron Adams on How Things Grow. Cam, welcome to How Things Grow. It's a pleasure to be here, Shimans. Absolutely. Cam, before working on Canva, you worked with Google. You worked on Google Wave, which the nerd that I am, I actually remember using all those years ago. I remember thinking it was both incredibly cool in a kind of overwhelming kind of way. So for those of our listeners who have no idea what that was, tell us what Google Wave was and what you did for it. Yeah, I think you're in the majority there thinking that it's overwhelming, but Google Wave was a product that Google launched. It was an interesting development process because it was very different to the way that Google developed anything else. But it was a communication tool around the time of 2007, 2008 when we started it and it eventually made its way into the public in 2010. It was about rethinking email. What would email look like if it was developed for the modern age? So email started 30, 40 years ago, it's built up a lot of impetus. What would email look like if we totally reimagined it? And it was very real time. There was lots of chatting in there, collaboration, had lots of plugins that you could use. You could play a Sudoku game in the middle of a work document that you were making. You could do all sorts of different stuff. And yeah, that, as you mentioned, that was kind of one of the problems with it. it. It did so many things that a lot of people felt overwhelmed when they came into it. And it was really hard to zero down on the value proposition of it. Obviously, a few years later, stuff like Slack and HipChat started coming out and they approached it from a different angle. It was still real-time communication, but it was a lot more simplified. And I think that simplified use case that they tackled really made it much more understandable to people and a lot more approachable. Got it. Yeah, I certainly remember it being kind of like Wikipedia and Google Docs. 
and you did say it didn't quite work because it was overwhelming as a user experience was there a way you guys saw that overwhelm happening among the users as you guys launched it out and i completely understand google can be a very big org and so there's like a stream of big stream of data coming there's a big team working on it but were there signs that you guys saw that it wasn't qu quite going to work yeah was, as i mentioned it was a really interesting process because they were trying to approach it as a startup within a big company so we had a concentrated team that were uh, insulated from the rest of the world down here in sydney and we worked on it for a long time without anyone in google knowing about it it took us about two and a half three years to build the full thing before anyone got to see a peak of it and when we released it we had this epic presentation at Google I.O., which went for 70 minutes and showed off every single feature. And it was a really wow moment. Like there was lots of technical hurdles that we had to overcome to actually get it working in a browser at the time. But people were gobsmacked about it and we opened up a waiting list and people just flooded in. I think we ended up with about 3 million people on the waiting list for that. But we prematurely presented it. It wasn't quite ready for the public. It took us about another six months before we could let people on. And in that time, we saw people just from the snippets that we'd shown trying to piece together exactly what the product was. And different people thought it did different things for them because we kind of hailed it as the solution to all their work problems, their social problems, et cetera. So lots of people thought it was perfect for them and their particular use case. And then we eventually started letting people in off the waiting list and we dropped them in. We didn't have a fantastic onboarding experience and people got a bit lost. I think one of the key things as well was that it was a very collaborative platform and it was about eliciting response from people. And if you think of 40 years ago, if you were the first person with an email address, you've got no one to send emails to. And it was a similar sort of thing in Google Wave. The people would get on, they have no one to collaborate with, no one to communicate with. So engineering those moments of connection was really hard. We sort of started to realize this and, and tried to get groups of people onto the product at the same time rather than individuals. And that had some success. And we eventually, after about a year, we were slowly pivoting towards more of a business product than a consumer product. We we're slowly trying to pivot towards that use case, but eventually the project got canceled just because the core user base that we had, we had a really active user base of about 500,000 people. But at Google scale, that's a drop in the ocean. So it's, it's really hard to prove that your project's a success at that scale within Google. So the call was made to redistribute the team to other projects. I think that goes on to show that even the best products need a certain amount of liquidity, social liquidity for people to interact with each other. That's certainly something I see with some of my clients that we optimize for liquidity that people can actually interact inside of that because otherwise there's just no point. And it sounds like this was also in many ways way ahead of its time and had it mm. come a couple of years later, it could have perhaps been much, much more successful. After Google, you actually started your own company before you came to Canva. Tell us about this company of yours and how it worked out for you. Yeah, so after Google, I started a company called Fluent, which was with two other Google engineers. And we thought we'd had it all figured out from Google Wave. So Wave was trying to redo email, but in a very radical way. And we were like, let's try and do it in a slightly less radical way, but still pretty new and unique. So we decided to build a new type of mail client. And it ended up being somewhat like Mailbox or Google Inbox, which came out a few years later. 
but we kind of preceded that and, and we built it and it was a very fluid, almost chat-like experience and it worked really well. The people that we managed to get on board really liked it. But we hit sort of other problems with that project in that we were a very small team. So we were three people on Google Wave. We had about 60 people on it. Yeah. So there was the three of us trying to run a startup and we were running a bunch of email servers, which, you know, email has become a bit of a commodity nowadays. You can get a free Gmail account and it costs absolutely nothing. But the actual underlying infrastructure of email is actually quite expensive. So you have to run your own email servers, run your own search servers, et cetera. So we ended up with a very expensive cost per user. Of, it was about $5 per month for us. And we initially were thinking of, we wanted it to be a paid product and kind of bootstrap ourselves. But we made the unfortunate mistake of talking to a journalist at the SMH down here in Sydney. And kind of being naive as we were, we just had a little chat to him about what we're doing. And we're like, don't write anything about us yet. We're not ready. And he was like, sure, sure, sure. Two days later, we found out article had hit the front page. It had gotten voted up on Hacker News. And we had all these people flooding in. We ended up with a wait list of about 80,000 people wanting to use the product. Wow. And the landing pages that we had at the time didn't talk anything about our business model, et cetera, because we'd set it up just for our beta users. So we had these, had these 80,000 people waiting to come on and demo the product. And it would literally have cost us $400,000 to get all those people on board and have them try it out. So we were scratching our heads trying to figure out what to do. Along with all that kind of user interest, we got a lot of investor interest as well, just, just from that PR. So we're like, okay, we'll deviate from our bootstrap plan and we'll just try and go and get investment because it seems really easy. We had at least 20 investors sitting in our inbox just waiting to throw money at us. Yeah. So two of us yeah. decided to go over to Silicon Valley and the plan was to spend three days there and come back with a briefcase full of cash and then continue to develop the product. Unfortunately, we ended up spending two months there traipsing up and down Sand Hill Road, all throughout the Bay Area, talking to investors who from a distance had been super keen and then you land and then they want to ask you all these questions and figure out your business model, and where the company's headed and all this kind of stuff. And we quickly learned that money isn't as easy to get as you think it is. Yeah. So we spent two months, got really close on some deals learnt about the politics of raising around, getting a group of investors on board, came really close to pulling a deal together and it fell through in like the last hour of contract negotiations. And after that, we were just kind of deflated. We'd spent so much time in San Francisco. We hadn't been developing the product during that time. We'd let our um, active users kind of languish and we'd all run out of money. A few of us had mortgages. We had no more funds to put people on. So we came back to Australia and, and tried to figure out what to do. But luckily I had a meeting in there with a person called Melanie Perkins and that kind of dictated what my future would be. Yeah, so that was third time lucky for you and we'll certainly get into that. But it sounds like your experience with your own startup was a crazy whirlwind, which to be honest, I had no idea about. I mean, you got this huge stream of users. I mean, that you would think was a sure sign that you had enormous, enormous success as a startup lined up in front of you. You had this huge wait list. You had this huge buzz. You had this enormous investor interest. And I can imagine it can have been so discouraging to 
not have it work out. And sometimes I can imagine it can be like, oh, why did it not work out? We seem to have all the ingredients in place. Sometimes these things happen. It's good for you that you were third time lucky. And as you briefly said, you got to meet Melanie. Tell me more about how you guys got connected. Yeah, so my old boss from Google Wave called Lars Rasmussen, and he's actually one of the founders of Google Maps. So him and three other guys started that down here in Sydney. And after Maps, they did Google Wave, and I worked with him on that. And he's an amazing guy, very well connected. And kind of halfway through doing Fluent, Lars got in contact with me, and he's like, I met this girl who has this company they're running. It's a yearbook company. They need a bit of technology advice. Can you go chat to them? So I said, sure. And I popped into their office, which is nearby here in Sydney and had a chat to them and they were running this yearbook business at the time that was running on a Flash platform and Flash was quickly dying at that stage. So I think Steve Jobs had just made his announcement that Apple wasn't going to support Flash anymore. So they needed to figure out what the future of their, their yearbook business was and, and how they're going to do it. So I talked to them about HTML5 and JavaScript and everything that could do, et cetera. And along the way, Mel told me about this idea she had for taking their yearbook business even bigger so that you know, her vision had always been to revolutionize design and bring design into the hands of everyone around the world. And it was a really fascinating idea to me because I have a background as a graphic designer and design has been a powerful force in my life. And being able to take that to a wider audience and put powerful tools in the hands of people that have never had them before was incredibly inspiring. But I was kind of on my own journey at the time and I'm like, cool idea, uh, let me know how it goes and wandered off on my way. And over the next couple of months, I just couldn't get the idea out of my head. You know, it really spoke to me as a designer and a, a technologist. And the opportunity of it was immense. So I got back in contact with Mel and, and I was like, how are you going with uh, Canva? And she was like, oh, you know, we haven't gotten too far. Still trying to get an investor on board, pull a team together. And I'm like, do you need any help? And that's when the three of us joined together. And we got funding probably about three or four months after that, started building a prototype and took us about a year before we released anything out to the public. I certainly am aware. You guys worked on the product for close to a year before you guys launched. You came on board, you saw the promise of this. Now, working on the product for a year seems to be a very different approach from what a lot of people advocate about shipping an MVP quickly, iterating fast, that's the lean startup approach that a lot of people tend to advocate for. So you guys were building for a year and you were new to the team, you were new to the idea, you'd just come off of two projects that Google Wave and your own company that you thought could see immediate buzz, that you saw seeing immediate traction. And now you were working on a project that you, you were working on a year before it even launched, right? So what inspired the approach that Right, we're going to work on this thing for a year before we launch. And uh, what is going on during that year internally for you guys? Yeah, I think you can interpret MVPs in different way. Essentially, putting out an MVP is about learning, you know, learning information that you can feed into the process. Mm -hmm. And we'd all done a lot of learning previously. You know, their previous book, The Yearbooks Business, had been a five-year learning process for Mel and Cliff about how to run a business, what their product needed to be, dealing with non-professional designers, what they needed to do. And I'd spent you know, the previous part of my career working with creative tools, working with technology, et cetera. 
we had like a bank of learning that we'd already built up and that had informed our vision and what we wanted to build. And it takes a bit of time to build something that takes you to a new level of learning. Even though you're building a product as an MVP, you still need to be heading somewhere. It's not like you can throw up a linked list on day one and iterate from there to, to where you're going to go. You still need to present people with something unique, something new, and something which offers them value. You can't just iteratively build from day one. Um, yeah. And that's where we were. We had good ideas of what we wanted to build, what people needed. And in order to fulfill that vision, it took us a year. Now, a year isn't actually that long in terms of, of building a, a V1 of a product. Google Wave, we spent over three years doing that. I know plenty of other products that have taken five years or more to get out into the public. Um, yeah. Obviously, it's, it's extremely risky to build on that time frame, but I think a year is actually a really good piece of time in which you can build something of tangible value. And it's not like we didn't get any feedback on the product within that year. You still have to use standard design, um, leverage user testing, validate your ideas and make sure you're building in the right way. But sending out a big message to the public that, hey, here's a product, come on board, not something that you do lightly. Got it. So it sounds like you guys had interim feedback during that year just to see if you guys were headed in the right direction. Yeah. You were sort of the right thing. Were there any experiences or any pieces of feedback during that time that surprised you or materially impacted what you were building at the time? Probably the biggest piece of insight that we got when we did a, a quite intensive round of user testing about two or three months before we launched. And we built the product, we'd, we'd polished the UI, all the functionality was there and it hung together really nicely. You could effectively design something from scratch using Canva at that stage. Um, yeah. And we put it in front of a bunch of people and their reactions were really interesting to us because they had all this capability at their fingertips, uh, but they were really afraid to touch things. Like they didn't want to move this piece of text or type something or choose a color or drag a shape from the sidebar or even choose a template. And people were just really afraid of ruining things, mucking them up. And we needed to find a way to get people comfortable with thinking of themselves as designers because the phrase that we heard at the time over and over was, oh, I'm not a designer, I can't use this. Yeah. So we needed to break that barrier down and we worked really hard on the onboarding process to speak to new users in really friendly language and incrementally get them to do small things that individually didn't seem like they were designing something, but when you chain them together, it's the whole design process. And it took us about a month to really hone that onboarding process so that we could take someone from this very fearful situation into this moment of creativity where they'd unlocked this new freedom. Yeah, and that's exactly the moment that's oftentimes described as the aha moment. And I can absolutely see why that phrasing is used. Right? And I've certainly seen a lot of gaming onboarding experiences where you basically handhold the user, have them go through an experience, almost take that fear away. And that sounds just an incredible process of transformation for a user. So uh, you guys, and this was still pre-launch that you guys tested this. Yep. As you mentioned, your mission was to make design accessible to non-designers, right? So even though you guys did this, these tests, you had the onboarding experience in place, what did you guys have doubts that, is this going to be believable as a promise to users? 
because as you said, a lot of people have fear and trepidation. I certainly do, right? So there was one thing of having this mission. Did you guys have doubts about being able to execute on the promise, perhaps because it is too grand a promise, or perhaps because people's fears and trepidation may have been way too much? How did you guys think about this? I think if you're going to be in a startup, you need to have self-belief. If you're doubting your idea or, or fearful that it's going to take off, you probably shouldn't be going into a startup. And some of that's a bit of hubris. It's a bit naive, but that belief gets you through. You know, you have to spend a year on little to no wage and not seeing your family very often. And to get you through that, you have to have belief in what you're doing. So, I mean, we believed that we could make a fantastic design experience for people. And we knew that it would have value because we talked to people that had got value out of you know, smaller scale uh, products like that. Yeah. The thing we didn't know was exactly how popular it would be. We knew that it would find a really good user base, but its applicability to the entire world, we hadn't quite fathomed yet. And I think it's been over the last six years that we've really seen how far Canva can go, the number of different things it can do, and just the different ways it can touch people's lives in different countries, different situations. Yeah. And that mass market potential of the product itself was there a specific inflection point where it became very clear that it could have the kind of global appeal that it does have today yeah i think we have evolved and unlocked different markets over the years initially at the time it was 2012 when we started developing it in 2013 when we actually launched the product and social networking although not new was still merging and growing and people were coming to grips with what social media was, what sort of content they could share on there. And visual content was becoming really important. I think Pinterest had launched in a year or two previously. Pinterest is all about visual content and aesthetics and people communicating through pictures. And that was starting to bleed through into the other social networks as well. Image post to Facebook, Instagram was just on the rise as well. People were becoming a lot more visually literate and Canva really filled this burgeoning need for people to be able to create high quality visuals with good quality photos, great text, shapes, graphic design, taking it to the next level. And we really enable people to do that. Because of that kind of social media tie-in, people who were really active on social media took to our product early on. So we're really fortunate that bloggers and social media marketers latched onto Canva in its early days, started using it voraciously. So obviously they'll, they'll post to their social accounts every day or multiple times a day. And Canva being able to help them do that was an incredibly powerful tool. We built up some really good relationships with some bloggers and some social media marketers and they helped spread the word of Canva. And we've kind of used organic growth and word of mouth as our main growth engine for the past six years. We've, we've kind of added in different channels, but word of mouth and people referring us is still extremely powerful. And I think it's a testament to the quality of the product and how useful it is that people are willing to tell their friends about it, tell their colleagues about it and give advice for your business to get on camera or or whatever it is. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys rode the wave that was unlocked by increased proliferation of social media and blogging at the time. And I would like to dig into what you said briefly, which is you guys started off by building a lot of relationships with bloggers and social media managers to get word out. 
Can you speak to what exactly that process was like? What did you say in your emails to them? How did that relationship begin with all of these social media marketers and bloggers? Yeah, I don't think it's something that necessarily scaled. We probably only did it for a few months after launch and prior to launch. But we did build some really great relationships that way. We had someone who dealt specifically with bloggers and she had a really good network of people that she could get in contact with. She knew lots of people that were running craft blogs at the time and had lots of readers. She would just reach out to them and say, hey, we've got this new tool. We think it could really help you with your posts and your marketing. Would we be able to give it a try? And a few of them we kind of even approached from a user testing perspective, like, hey, we haven't launched yet, but can you give it a try? We'd love to hear your feedback. So we did that with, with a few bloggers and they, they really took to it. And building that relationship and feeding their feedback into the product really helped. So if they were experiencing a particular bug, we would fix it really quickly and then get back to them so that they could try it again. Or if they really wanted this particular font or this feature, we would try and be as responsive as possible. And we did the same sort of thing with prominent social media marketers who also happened to be bloggers as well. So we latched onto a few people here in Australia and a couple of overseas people that were giving advice to other people, doing their own content. And as they use Canva for their content, they naturally spread it through their network and suggested Canva to them. So it was a really good starting point for word of mouth and network effects. Yeah. And given these were your power users, at least early on, I can see how that can be incredibly effective. But as you also said, that wasn't necessarily scalable because it sounds like it was a relatively manual process of writing emails to these guys and having them use the tool. So as you guys grew, and if you had to compare that approach to now, I would imagine, so how has the process of getting the word out about the tool about the product evolved now compared to back then when you were emailing all these social media managers and bloggers? Yeah, I think the, the manual outreach really works on launches and on specific moments that you want to target. So it worked really well for our launch. And if you think of number of people signing up to your product as this linear graph, on launch day, you get this massive spike that, that goes up almost probably 20 times what your baseline is or even more. And from that spike, it comes down really sharply. And where it comes down to is what you really want to focus on. The number of people that are in your baseline is where you're going to build from. So reaching out to those people really helped with that baseline. And I think in the early days of Canva, our baseline was about 1,000 or 5,000 people. So when you think of it today with tens of millions of users, it's a, it's a tiny drop in the ocean, but it's a good starting point for any product. And it's from there that you can't really use your manual relationships. So trying to get active user growth from a thousand people up to 10,000, it's really hard to do that through manual relationships. And I think the one thing we've focused on throughout all of Canva is the quality of our product and making sure that we're actually giving people something valuable, something that solves their problem, something that elevates them to a new level. And I think through that, that has generated the bulk of our referrals and our word of mouth is people just being so impressed with the product that they can't wait to tell people about it or suggest it to them when they're looking for a tool to do their birthday cards or their social posts or their company branding. People will just naturally tell them to go to Canva. That has been the source of our organic growth. Yeah, and it certainly is one thing to build a valuable product but were there product decisions or were there growth-related decisions you guys took that made sure this wasn't just a great product that had a one-and-done use case, 
but it also was something that had people retaining over time and have a building have an ongoing user base that was actually active in the app so were there product decisions or growth related decisions you guys made yeah there are a few different decisions we made along the way i'll mention a couple of the more pivotal ones so in the early days we focused a lot on the editing experience like people creating a design by dragging stuff out and that has remained a very important focus of ours but ultimately the growth of canva comes through a diversification of the channels that we get people in. For the first year, we relied mainly on word of mouth, etc. But in year two, we got someone in who was a really fantastic growth marketer and he helped us focus on how we actually get people into the product rather than the product experience itself. We built up a fantastic SEO strategy. We had a blog which did some really great content marketing. We had a really good landing page structure for people who were looking to do specific things. So we ranked really well and still do rank really well for stuff like Poster Maker or Logo Maker or a bunch of other different things. And he managed to drive that traffic through other things other than word of mouth. And we quickly got up to like a 50-50 split on a word of mouth versus more SEO search-driven traffic. And that was a really pivotal moment in the way that we could get people to Canberra and the rate at which we were signing up people. So that was really important. Yeah. Then I think probably about, you know, we did a lot of stuff in between, but about four or five years later, we had a real focus on internationalizing our product, which was again, another pivotal moment where we realized that not just having your product in English and hitting the main markets of US, UK, Australia was was extremely important. And over the last two and a half, three years, we've seen an incredible diversification in our audience as we've made it accessible to people in different countries. Brazil is now one of our top countries because we have localized the product both in language. We've also got an Android app, which is really powerful in Latin American countries. And focusing on those international markets has been extremely important for us growing to a global company and finding new avenues for growth as well. Yeah, I would you know, re-emphasize the first part of your answer for our listeners because I think it's very common to see, at least in the startup world, that build a great product and word of mouth will happen organically, which is true to a certain extent. But I would, also, I would point out what you said, which is that you had a very intentional growth marketing strategy not just to build that great product, but also to make sure there was traffic coming in, that there were users finding out, users that were coming in top of funnel and trying out the product itself. So it sounds like you guys were very intentional about that, which is something that oftentimes tends to get lost in startup mythology of let's build a great product and things will happen. Yeah, exactly. You always need to focus on certain things at different stages, but you can't just have the one strategy the whole time. And having different ways of dealing with things, different ways of looking at growth is extremely important for the health of your company. Yeah. And you were speaking about your days closer to your launch. So you were connecting with these bloggers, you were building relationships, you were building a waitlist. And I understand you guys had a waitlist of 50,000 at the time when you guys launched. Launch day approaches what happens 
the night before the launch? Yeah, so, I mean, we'd been hustling to build the product, iron out all the bugs, make sure it was a great experience. And we'd been pulling all-nighters. And I think we were working weekends as well at that stage. And we were launching on a Monday night, just a time with US press, so like US press opening up the week. We needed to have the build of the product out and stable by Sunday. And I was working Saturday night in our office, which is in Surrey Hills, and I normally get around by bicycle. So I was left the office at about 8 p.m. and was cycling home and was going down this steep hill right near the office. And unfortunately, this taxi decided to cross the road right at that moment. And I would have been going at about 40 kilometers an hour and hit the bonnet of the taxi, blacked out and kind of woke up on the road, spitting blood. And fortunately, a bouncer from a nearby pub had come over and stopped traffic, made sure I didn't get run over. Uh, and I was kind of out of it and dazed and, and he looked after me for a while. But he eventually ended up calling Cliff, my co-founder. And Cliff immediately jumped in the van and drove five blocks to where I was, managed to get me into doing an ambulance, had kind of some big, big gashes on my face. I was missing a tooth and spent the night in hospital but next day came back into the office kept coding we had to get the release out and fortunately we made the deadline of course i knew about you know the accident that you had the night before i didn't know you came into launch what was your thinking as you like woke up the next morning and you're like <laughs> oh we built this thing out it's ready what was going through your mind at the time the next morning uh you're pretty fatigued and you just spent a late night because US press launches at 1 a.m. So you're up till then and re refreshing TechCrunch to see when the article lands, refreshing the local press as well. And yeah, you're pretty tired. You, you watch it for a bit. You watch the people coming in for a bit and then you're like, okay, I'm going to go home and have a sleep. And then you wake up and you look at the stats and there's like 10,000 people who signed up for an account. You've got 20 people using the product right now and a bunch of them are giving you feedback. And that's kind of where you start. You look at what they're saying, listen to the positive and the negative, figure out what your next move is. So do you start entering bug fix mode? Is there this feature that you want to build? There's stuff that was on your plate already. And I think you just, you just get on with it. There's a never ending list of things you need to do, whether it's coding or designing or figuring out the business, doing a partnership, and you just got to keep doing that stuff. But you know, constantly rechecking where you're heading and where you need to navigate to based on the new information that you have now. Because now that your product's out in the market, you're receiving a whole bunch of more information that you weren't previously getting. It informs your decisions and makes you think about what it is you're meant to be doing. Yeah. So you guys had this huge spike during launch and you, you were like, right, we're back to our baseline. Let's start building. Let's keep going for the longer, longer run. And just to switch gears a bit, why did you guys pick the freemium or microtransaction model for your monetization? I think it was kind of obvious to us. We always wanted to democratize design and, and part of doing that was making the product as accessible as possible. So we always wanted as many people in the world to have access to design as we could. And we knew that some people wouldn't be able to afford anything but they still needed a way to communicate and get their ideas out of their head. So we wanted them to get value out of Canva as well. And I think we'd seen a few products that had been successful with that avenue and it was 
kind of an emerging model that was happening with SaaS products. And, you know, we knew we could make it a success. There was some other stuff that tied into it as well. So a large part of Canva is about our marketplace of photos and illustrations, videos, fonts, all that kind of stuff. And at the time, all that value was locked up in very expensive things that were highly inaccessible. So we looked at the workflow of normal graphic designers and they would have to go find an image that cost anywhere from $100 to $500, $1,000. And before doing that, they would have to do sorts of mental gymnastics to make sure they were designing in the right way and had a nice image. And it was really difficult for non-designers to get their head around. And it was also really difficult for them to pay for. That, that was a large reason why a lot of people go with really low quality imagery because they can't afford the really good stuff or they don't know where to find it. So it was really important for us to have those elements available for people that had never been able to access them before. And lowering the price point was an important part of doing that. Because Canva was unique in that it had both the asset marketplace and the design creation tool, we could do things with our business model that other companies couldn't. So your traditional stock photo marketplaces had to sell their images at higher prices because they didn't know where the image was going after that. Someone could buy an image and then use it in 15 different things for a book, a flyer, a business card, whatever. Whereas with us, we knew exactly what people were using for and we could charge them accordingly. So that let us bring the price down from $10, $100 to $1 an image, which immediately makes it so much more accessible and makes it easy for people to try things out, build up a new brand, drop a fantastic image into their newsletter, do whatever they want. And it was amazingly empowering to see people just be able to access this almost infinite library of things that they just hadn't thought about before. Were there products or monetization mechanics that you guys looked to for inspiration as you evolved your own? Uh, I think Dropbox was a big inspiration to us because they've always had a very grassroots approach, really easy to sign up. You can try the product out without too much commitment. And then once you've found it useful, and you want to get more out of it, you can start paying for it. So, I mean, it's, it's that traditional freemium model. Uh, and the way they'd managed to grow that from consumers through to businesses using their product was inspirational for us. Even closer to home somewhere, you know, a company like Atlassian here in Sydney, they employed much the same tactic, albeit in a slightly different market. But they made it really simple for a single person inside a company to pick up the product, start using it. And then as it scales, that's when you start introducing pricing add-ons, things that people want to buy. So having, instead of doing top-down sales where you have to sell your product to an entire enterprise, being able to offer your product really simply to one person within the company and have them get excited about it and then evangelize it to their colleagues, that was another kind of model that we took inspiration from. Yeah. So in many ways, you're gradually helping the user progress through the product, build up a level of comfort, and very slowly monetize to progressively larger amounts of money as they become more comfortable with the product. Sounds like that was the approach and the playbook that you used and a lot of these other products used as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, you guys grew very substantially over the last couple of years. What did you personally have to learn as the company grew? Uh, and as context, you worked on your own startup. You were like a pretty much 
two-person team, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, with Google Wave, you were working directly on a product. And now, and again, with Canva in the early days, you were working with a small team and you were working hands-on. But as you guys grow to 50, 100, I believe you guys are 300 to 400 right now. So as you grow, what did you have to learn about the way you work and about the way you manage as the company grew? Yeah, I think for me personally, it's been about the move from being a creator, someone who has their hands in the pie, making the thing, doing the coding, doing the designing and making decisions that way in a very tactile way to having this massive team. We grow on so many dimensions. Obviously, we grow on users, we grow on revenue and team growth is probably one of the hardest things to manage and get right. Pretty much on every metric, we double every year and it's been the same with our team size. So the start of last year, we had about 250 people between our two offices here in Sydney and one in Manila. And by the end of 2018, we had close to 500 people. And those changes in scale, you can't really foresee how it's going to change the company. Different things break at different stages. And you have to constantly reinvent the way you do things. We have to reinvent the way we do meetings, the way we communicate our vision, how we do goal setting, the structure of our teams, how we educate our leaders, even how we serve our lunches. We have to change how we do the lunch lines every time the the team doubles. And constant juggling act of seeing what's breaking and coming up with a new strategy for it. Yeah, for me personally, it's been how do I extract myself from having to do the thing? So... I can't code the product anymore. I can't make every single design decision. So building up a great team around me, building up my trust in them, passing on any knowledge or processes that I've found to be successful, and then making sure those systems just function really well by themselves has been my biggest learning point. And it's something I'm constantly learning, but I feel like I'm in a comfortable position right now for our stage of growth, but I'm sure I'll get stressed and broken in a, in a few months' time once more and more people come on or once more projects spin up. Yeah, and once you guys double your headcount very, very soon, hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. You, you did say your headcount increased very substantially and pretty much doubled very recently. What were, And I understand that specifically in 2017, your paid user growth really went through the roof. And at least I understand that was perhaps one of the key drivers for you guys having the unicorn valuation that you guys do have today. So were there key decisions or strategies that drove that enormous growth in paid users and revenues at the time? Yeah, with uh, with a startup, so you'll go through different phases. At the start, particularly for a SaaS product, you focus mainly on user growth and not so much on revenue or, or how much money you're getting in. And you can tell that story to investors for a few years. You know, we're getting new users from this market, we're increasing them this way, we've got organic traffic and, you know, word of mouth, SEO, all that kind of stuff. And you can lay out different strategies for user growth. But it gets to some stage where people will think, okay, you've got that many users, you've nailed the growth now, it's a, it's a constant engine that's going. How are you actually going to turn this into a company that can survive by itself? And that's when you need to start thinking about business model and revenue, et cetera. We always had, as you mentioned before, we had our, our paid element business model that we always thought about and had been really successful. But 
we'd also had another uh, offering that we'd always wanted to do, which was more of a subscription offering. That's what we call Canva for Work. We ended up building that probably about two, two and a half years after launch. And after we launched it, it like eclipsed our element, paid element offering almost immediately. Uh, we were really astounded with the growth that it had. Our users were really passionate and looking out for new features that could help them design, particularly for their business and take their business to the next level. And we saw a great market response to that. So we kind of focused in on that area as being one of our big breadwinners. And in the past three or four years, the growth in that subscription offering has been amazing. And yeah, us being able to convert that user growth into tangible revenue was an important part in, in becoming a billion dollar company. And I think once you get to that stage, investors are really looking for, okay, at the end of the day, what return are we going to get from this? And showing revenue growth and an ability to monetize your users is extremely important to that. Yeah. And that makes complete sense because you guys are a daily use product, especially for designers, especially for people who post on social media, on blogs relatively often so it makes complete sense to make this a subscription product because people are going to be using it every day or relatively often anyway especially in work contexts so that certainly makes sense so you've seen like six plus years of people using the product in its different iterations in its different forms were there use cases that surprised you uh, were there ways in which people were using it that made you look at it and say, oh, and we never thought people could use Canva in that particular manner. Yeah, there's been some really surprising ones and also some really heartwarming ones. My favorite kind of funny one is a sheriff's office in the United States who uses Canva for their warrants. So every Wednesday they have a thing called Warrant Wednesday and they'll publish a poster with a criminal that they're trying to find that week and it's done in Canva. It's amazing to think that Canva is helping to fight crime somewhere in the world. But we also have other uses that kind of crept up, but the impact just really hits you. I think in our first year, we got this email from someone who runs an orphanage in South America, Guatemala, I think. And she'd just written an email to say thank you for giving her a tool because she uses it to send out her newsletters about the kids in her orphanage and uses it to help find kids their forever home. Um, and it was amazing to think that someone in such an unfortunate situation could in any way be helped by Canva. And, you know, just that tiny little bit of help that they get from being able to design their newsletter and communicate a bit better to people, let them find more homes for those kids. That was like one moment where I was just really hit with the impact that we could have. And then there's, there's lots of little stories through education as well, which I'm really passionate about. So we often see teachers using Canva to get involved with their students and get the students really excited about learning. An interesting use case I saw was that a teacher will basically connect their laptop to the projector in class and be kind of designing the class on the fly in Canva. So they'll talk about a particular concept in history or mathematics and they'll be typing it into Canva and arranging the content on the fly so that the kids can see what they're talking about and, and visualize it. And just Thinking about how Canva has changed this thing like the classroom from, you know, a manual thing where you might be presenting overheads or kids writing in their sketchbook to actually using a visual design tool to help them learn is really exciting. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Also because I think it's easy to 
be buried in pixels and spreadsheets and all the accoutrements of the digital world. So it's very heartwarming to actually see your product out in the wild and to see actual see and hear actual people's stories. Cameron, I, I know we're coming up against time, so I want to be respectful of your calendar. Sure. Yeah, and this was an incredible story of, of how you guys have basically built up from very, very little, how, and how you guys basically took one step at a time, just built up an amazing product that's very, very meaningfully impacting the world today. So I'm very, very grateful to have had you on the show. Before we sign off, Cameron, uh, can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and about Canva? Yeah, so they can definitely hit up Canva.com if they want to try out the product. Got a whole bunch of materials on there that will help you learn design. And we also have an about section where you can learn more about the history of the Canva team as well. We also have a big job portal. We have lots of open positions because we are trying to double the team again this year. So finding an extra 500 people is no mean feat. And we need people from all walks of life, different skill sets. So engineers, marketers, designers, Wonderful. product managers. Yeah, and I'm going to link to all of that, link to Canva and of course your jobs portal because clearly that sounds like that's a huge priority for you guys. Yeah. All of that in the show notes and the transcript. But for now, thank you so much, Cameron, for being on How Things Grow. I can't wait to put your interview out into the world very soon. No problem. It was really nice chatting to you. Absolutely. Thank you, Cameron. Hey, everyone. This is Shamant again. Before you go, I have a very small but important request for you. If you get any pleasure or inspiration from this episode or from How Things Grow, could you please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform? be it iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasting fix. This podcast takes many, many hours of my time and is very much a labor of love. When you write a review, it will not only be a great deal of encouragement to me, but will also support getting the word out about how things grow. Thank you so much for listening along, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of How Things Grow in two weeks' time. Thank you.